welcome everyone to a series of discussions by Herbert Smith Friel's partners in respect of current issues in class action litigation in Australia. Our goal is to unpack the headlines that you're reading in the media about class action developments, both legislative and in the jurisprudence, and to dig a little deeper into what their impact will be for commercial Australia. And to do that, uh, I'm joined today by uh, two of our leading partners in this space, who hopefully you can see on screen, Ruth Overington based in Melbourne, Ante Gollum based in Perth, could not get a deeper uh, section of experience to uh, expose some of the issues that we're seeing developing this year in the class action landscape here in Australia. We've got a few topics that we'd like to talk about over the next 10 or 15 minutes, um, predominantly focused on legislative change in this space and some ongoing reviews that are being undertaken federally on the operation of our class action system. Uh, the topics we'd like to discuss briefly um, would be the proposal to introduce contingency fees in Victoria, which is a proposal that's had some national exposure as well and it's certainly been a hot topic in the media over recent weeks. The recently announced parliamentary committee review of the operation of the class actions regime in Australia, which is an extremely broad scope of focus and will expose all of the issues that particularly our client base grapples with in this space. And the last thing we'll talk about is some very recently introduced legislation to provide temporary relief to Australian listed entities from the operation of our continuous disclosure obligations in respect of material information. So that's a full agenda. We might start by asking Ruth to talk a little bit about the contingency fee proposal in Victoria and some of the implications for that if it gains legislative traction, Ruth. Sure, thanks Jason. Um, so obviously, Funding of class action comes in many different forms. Um, one of them, of course, is the law firms themselves. Um, we've all heard of no win, no fee, which is essentially a, a funding arrangement where the law firm charges fees by reference to time, but doesn't actually invoice those fees until such time as their clients have a win. And the downside for the law firm is that they risk not being paid if, if their clients do not succeed. But the upside is that if the clients do have a win or a settlement, the law firm is entitled to charge 125% of their um, fees, so essentially a 25% uplift. So in Victoria, there's a proposal at the moment to introduce contingency fees legislation. Now, what that means is that a law firm, instead of charging by reference to time, would be entitled to charge by reference to a percentage of the amount that their clients receive in the class action. Um, so essentially a, a percentage, if you like, of the client's recovery. So under the Victorian proposal, the law firm would be entitled to recover a percentage of the recovery of the entire group. Um, essentially, it looks a lot like the common fund orders we've seen in other jurisdictions. Even more interesting is the fact that the wording used in the current legislation uses as a threshold a requirement that the court be satisfied that an order of this kind is necessary to ensure justice is done in the proceeding. Uh, so a live question, even after this legislation is passed, is, is a group order appropriate or necessary to ensure justice is done in the proceeding? And we've seen similar wording in the original federal court class action legislation um, recently being determined as not justifying a common fund order. 
However, given that the Victorian legislation, the very purpose of it is to permit contingency fees, it would suggest that the wording appropriate or necessary to ensure justice is done includes the concept of ensuring that there is sufficient funding for the class action to proceed. I think what, that's, what that indicates is here in Victoria, we're seeing a, a slight departure from the approach to class actions that's being seen elsewhere in, in the country. Um, and it raises a broader question to the extent that Victoria starts to push ahead with legislation, which makes it more attractive, if you like, for um, law firms to commence class actions in Victoria. Um, the question will, that will arise is to what extent will class actions now start to gravitate towards the Victorian jurisdiction um, where these sorts of orders are permitted in circumstances where the similar orders are not currently permitted elsewhere in the country. Um, the bill itself has been circulating for a couple of months now, um, but debate is set to resume next week. So it's a, it's a live topic and I think it'll be one to watch in the next couple of weeks. Ruth, one comment on that that I observe is that the justification for contingency fees is often said to be as you've, you've touched upon, access to justice concerns and the costs of prosecuting class actions are high and so incentives need to be delivered to those that promote them. Uh, there's an interesting issue, isn't there, about whether contingency fees will provide incentives for lawyers to pursue claims that are not currently already pursued by the funding market. Uh, so, for example, if they were to promote claims in the social justice space, wrongful detention, environmental toxic torts perhaps, deaths in custody, social goals. That would be one thing. If they merely focus on the prosecution of corporate class actions, continuous disclosure, malfeasance at the corporate level, we don't really have an undersupply of class actions in that space. Um, that's often the argument that's run is there's a missing middle, if you like. There's a, there's a group of class actions that are currently not being funded. And that's often used as the justification for introducing something like contingency fees. But there's a live question, as you quite rightly raise, about whether or not that's how it would in fact be used or whether instead we're just going to see more funding available for the same cases, the same class actions that already have access to funding. And obviously contingency fees, Ante, they, they are going to arise as a broad topic for discussion, one would think, given its scope in the Attorney General's ongoing review this year of the operation of class action in Australia. Might turn to you to get a comment on how you see those broad topics developing, not just contingency fees, but the broader review itself. Jason, thank you. I think you're quite right in saying that um, in the comments that the Attorney General Christian Porter made on announcing the inquiry, he actually specifically referred to reviewing the Victorian position and the proposal in relation to contingency fees um, in the way that Ruth's described. Um, but let me give a little bit of context to that headline that people have probably seen developing over the last uh, uh, 14 days or so. Um, essentially, what has happened is um, the federal government um, has uh, announced and, and uh, given um, confirmation that um, the Attorney General Christian Porter will refer to a parliamentary joint inquiry, um, being the Committee on Corporations and Financial Services, a broad ranging inquiry into class actions. Um, and that has, um, as you might expect, generated a lot of debate in the area. Um, 
pretty much along the lines of those who see this just as another inquiry in circumstances where um, we all know we've had a number of inquiries in, in the class action space, both at the Australian Law, Law Reform Commission level, but also at a state-based level in Victoria. Uh, notwithstanding those views and criticisms, um, the government has decided to push ahead with this further inquiry. And Jace, as you mentioned in the outset, the terms are going to be very broad. And, and the attorney's made some mention of what he sees as being some of the key issues to be focused uh, by the committee. Um, and he's called out his concern in relation to the impact um, uh, by the current class action system on Australian business. And he's particularly brought into focus a view that business is currently suffering under COVID-19 issues and he wants the committee to examine whether or not there needs to be a readjustment in the way um, the class action system is working given what we're seeing at the moment in terms of numbers of claims and the way things are going forward in, in that space generally. Um, he's also said that he's concerned about the broader economic impacts um, arising out of the, the class action landscape and whether or not that is causing issues um, in an economic sense for business the insurance industry and mentioned that as one of the other areas of interest for the committee. Um, and he's also, um, I think, quite interestingly uh, flagged that he wants the committee to look at um, the financial and organisational relationships between litigation funders and lawyers acting in these class actions. So again, picking up the things that you and Ruth have talked about in those opening comments. So as you say, it's a really broad ranging inquiry. Um, the government's committed at this stage for the committee to report back to it by the 7th of December, um, and then we'll review, obviously, the recommendations and findings of that committee alongside the other work that we're all quite familiar with from the Australian Law Reform Commission um, and other inquiries, obviously, that I've mentioned earlier. But, Jace, I think it's fair to say the space is um, being particularly um, uh, heavy in action in, in government getting out on the front foot on, on all of this, and probably another one of those areas that we've seen literally in, in the last few days has been the announcements in relation to continuous disclosure. Before I, I get a comment from Ruth on, on the reform agenda, would you guys both agree that you know, there is a debate, I know, in the, in the marketplace about whether class actions are, are growing? Uh, there was a suggestion that numbers dipped a little bit in 2019. I think one thing that's ungainsayable is that over the last three or four years, we've seen an exponential growth in the sense that 35, 40% of all class actions ever filed have been over that last four and five year period. And we've had a regime now for over 25 years. So there's in that thematic sense growth. And I think our clients are saying rightly, uh, is anyone properly examining whether this enormous transfer of wealth delivered by the class action machine, largely borne by listed entities and their directors and officers and their insurers is appropriate. Is our regime is our regime being used appropriately to transfer that wealth to the section of the economy that, that promotes class actions? And what's the distribution between those that promote them and those that are in the class who ostensibly have the claims? Is that balance correct? Because we, we all three of us know we've seen uh, enormous pressure on the insurance industry in Australia, particularly the side C, D and O section of that market, largely responsive to class action claims in the corporate malfeasance space. The balance seems to be creating enormous stresses in our system and our clients bear a lot of that, uh, that burden. So it's obviously, a ref I know we've had a lot of reviews, but it's obviously important given the enormous state of flux uh, of our class action environment. R Ruth, would that be 
Would that be something that you would echo? Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and I think one of the things you need to look at when you look at the numbers of class actions is where they're congregating. And as you as you say, they're congregating in the shareholder class action space. It's not across the board. Um, and so the, the impact of them is also concentrated in the shareholder class action space. The impact on the DNO insurance market is well known. And we've seen, you know, insurers exit the market. Like it's it's got to the point where it's no longer a product they can price appropriately in this market given the, the risks that, that they face. So I think when you've got that happening, it makes sense that it does need um, particular review. It, it needs, you know, the, the repeated review I think is appropriate because we're continuing to see it evolve. We're continuing to see the pressures mount, um, impacts on business um, are, are there for all to see. And so I think it's appropriate. You always need to take stock. Is the regime working? Can it, can it be improved? Is it serving the purpose for which it, it was set out to achieve? And so I, I agree. I echo all the points that you've said. I think it makes makes sense that it's scrutinised in the way that it is. Can I get you both to comment on just pivoting a little bit to the legislative uh, proposals in recent weeks? We'll come back to the proposal that... Uh, is soon to be law. We think that class action funders, third party funders maintain an Australian financial services licence. The, the more recent reform proposed by the Treasurer was, and in fact now has been implemented, is the temporary relief from the provisions of the continuous disclosure obligation in Australia. Now it's got a COVID-19 context, but the legislation itself seems to convert the current obligation to disclose material information in the listing rule 3.1 cents, you know, information that a reasonable investor would consider material to the share price. It converts that standard into something closer to a requirement to have knowledge of material information or negligence or recklessness as to whether you have that kind of information. Um, it's an interesting temporary reform proposal. Uh, it's generated even by class action standards, enormous uh, debate in the public domain over the last 48 hours. Um, I wouldn't mind your comment. It, it's a, it, in some aspects of it are very interesting because one might think for those that promote shareholder class actions and one in every two roughly is that kind of claim in modern times. Most of those allegations in those cases are that the company my words, misdiagnosed whether it had material information, which is not a million miles from a proposition that there's been negligence uh, in respect of whether material information needs to be disclosed to the market. And of course, negligence is the standard within the temporary relief. So there's an argument there that this move may not be as impactful as perhaps the explanatory memorandum suggested it might. And the other thing that I'll just get you to comment on both of you is, of course, we, we know that shareholder class actions have two primary allegations. There's the continuous disclosure obligation, but there's also the misleading and deceptive conduct allegation, which is that the company omitted from its public statement something that was material. Now, none of the temporary relief goes to those parts of the Corporations Act, and so one might think that a promoter of a shareholder class action would be exploring whether the temporary relief really provides any protection in respect of that half, the misleading conduct half of those claims. Uh, we don't have answers to that, but I'd be 
interested, Ante and, and Ruth, maybe starting with you, Ante, and your in your thoughts on on the legislative the legislative change. Um, Jason, as you say, that that relief has um, been recently introduced. I think a question that really arises on the amendments as they've been um, introduced is whether or not um, there is a genuine change in the protection that's being offered um, by these temporary measures. Um, and when you look at um, the, the language that's been um, introduced in moving away from that um, reasonable person test to um, what's now being proposed or, or to be implemented under these um, COVID-19 um, measures that the Treasurer has announced um, is actually whether that will of itself mean any um, real protection or, or easing in, in obligations on companies given um, the language that's been adopted um, in the measures. Um, and I think the other secondary element to all of that is whether or not the government has considered um, the need to make those exemptions or measures broader in scope. So, as I understand it, there's been no attempt to uh, bring within those measures um, the provisions dealing with misleading and deceptive conduct. So, um, you know, as we all know um, from our experience in this area, those claims that um, we're all talking about and dealing with um, are coupled with a, cl a claim for misleading and deceptive conduct in circumstances where those measures don't um, uh, broadly encompass those issues and those provisions of um, the Corporations Act, I think there's a real um, underlying risk and um, concern, which I suspect will emerge in the coming days, that the, the relief that's been introduced has not gone far enough. Ruth, how do you see the equation on the reforms? Yeah, look, I think it will be really interesting to see what, if any, impact it has. Um, of course, the, the concept of reforming this part of the Corporations Act is not new. Um, the ALRC recommended that the government look at it. So I, I think it's an early, an early test. Um, you know, what sort of changes could be made? What impact would they have? Um, so I think it's very much it's a it's a sort of interesting um, test case, if you like, of, of potential changes and, and and whether or not they would better serve the the regime and, and what it's intended to to achieve. Yeah, that's right. And one can't help but assume that part of what's happening with the temporary relief is road testing whether it might be a more permanent feature of the continuous disclosure regime. But obviously one thing we all know about the Corporations Act is when you take one brick out of the structure, you've just got to be making sure that other bricks are still aligned and not collapsing. So it's a complicated area. And it's remarkable, isn't it, how the Corporations Act's developed alongside now the class action jurisprudence uh, in a way that probably wasn't predicted a quarter of a century ago when we had these had this legislation introduced. One other comment which might be a little further than we need to go for today, but it's interesting when you look at the reform package that there's no uh, reforms of the listing rules. And so it may be the case that the proper analysis, and this needs to be carefully tested, is that before you get to 6742 of the Corporations Act, the disclosure obligation, you still have to have information required to be disclosed by Listing Rule 3.1, which creates an unusual environment where you hold information that the Listing Rule says a reasonable person would expect to be disclosed, but you have the protection from the Corporations Act if it is not negligent to hold that information back. And that might be quite a narrow window of information because it's harder to see why you'd have 3.1 information that doesn't need to go to the market. But I accept that it may help in 
the very unusual pandemic circumstances we're facing now where there's genuine uncertainty about how earnings will develop, how physical parameters will develop, how other types of financial um, outcomes will occur or events will happen. But uh, it, as we've all said, I think it may not quite deliver the breadth of relief that, um, that, that some of the headlines are suggesting that it might. So I guess we, we should all watch that space. Jason, I was going to say, I agree with your comment there, and I think it underscores the tension between the government wanting to act quickly and introduce measures such as the ones that you've been describing, with also then uh, compromising perhaps the what otherwise would have been extensive consultation in relation to, as you described, the various bricks in the wall that make up um, the, the continuous disclosure system. So um, it'll probably be something that we'll see unfold in the next um, you know, week or two as people um, delve into the detail, test the scope and the limits of what we've been describing, and, and we might see that um, some of these issues play out in the headlines um, as they emerge over the, um, the coming period. Yeah. Just before we, we wrap up today, um, we should just note, of course, that uh, the proposal to introduce a licensing uh, requirement for third-party litigation funders, again, that, that is not a new proposal. I think it's been debated for the best part of maybe more than a decade since the High Court weighed in on the FOSTIF proceedings, but uh, it's probably a positive development. I think even the major funders uh, in our market responsibly have supported uh, that kind of change. And so I wouldn't imagine, some of your thoughts, Andane Ruth, that it'll uh, radically alter our class action environment. It might create a minimum dress code that may be helpful in keeping out some speculative claims pursued by those that don't really want to comply with those obligations, but I wouldn't imagine a, a seismic change to our market. I think that's right, and particularly on the key issue, which is funding permission, you know, the price um, for the, the price that's charged for running these cases. I, I don't think the licensing is the licensing aspect is going to have a material impact on that that part of the the issue. Jay, so I agree, and I think really in circumstances where funders um, in our market are well-funded, uh, well, um, well, funded, well organised, the imposition of this as a further business cost is probably not going to move the dial, so to speak, in relation to the way they're operating in this market. Um, perhaps um, we'll see how that unfolds, but that's definitely how I see um, you know, that coming out in practice in terms of what we're seeing on the numbers of claims being um, uh, run and um, you know the, the various things that we're seeing uh, before the courts in relation to the class action space. Well, that's that's been an excellent session, guys. We've probably bitten off more than we can chew. These topics all deserve their own sessions, but we're grateful for the audience to tuning into this uh, kickoff uh, session in respect of the class action environment. Um, thank you, Ruth and Ante, for your insightful comments. I think we're very grateful for the opportunity to engage with our clients. We recognise the enormous pressures that they're under at the moment, delivered by the growth in the class action environment here. And so we're conscious of keeping the debate front of everyone's minds. Please stay tuned for additional chapters in these fireside chats, possibly with actual firesides, we're not sure, but we'll um, continue to deal with topics as they arise in the market in a contemporaneous way. Uh, if you've got questions or comments that you'd like us to address in future sessions, please send those through and we'd be more than happy to deal with them. And for those clients that might have specific issues they'd like us to consider, we're always happy to address those too. Thank you again. Thanks to Ruth and Ante for this session and we look forward to engaging with you again shortly.
Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Stay safe. Take care. Bye-bye.